Uh, well, good morning, uh, Salt Church and everybody else. Uh, welcome uh, here. It is so fun to be in this room. Uh, my name is Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Salt Church. And uh, this is amazing uh, to see all of you guys in here leveraging your lives for the sake of uh, the kingdom. We have a, a lot of people uh, that probably don't know each other uh, in this room. So allow me uh, to make some introductions uh, for who's who in the room. Uh, there is a crew of you uh, that come from Resonate, uh, which is a, a church plan. Yeah, a few of you guys uh, coming from uh, Montana, uh, which is a church planning movement that seeks to take the gospel uh, to universities in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we have other students here from what is known as the SALT Network, uh, which is a church planning movement in the Midwest uh, that wants to bring uh, the gospel through church planning to communities uh, near collegiate centers. Many of you guys are considering moving here, actually getting jobs and being a part of uh, Salt Church. And then there's others of you that are literally already here on the ground in Greeley. You live here. You've been crying out to God that, uh, that he would bring forth people to bring the gospel here uh, to make uh, uh, much of Jesus. And uh, you've been holding the line in that way. Guys, uh, if, if you don't know this, this is not normal. <laughs> this is not normal to see uh, a room like uh, this. Uh, most churches are in uh, decline or they're plateaued, uh, or they're fighting over Christians that already go to church and they're territorial. But you guys, by being in this room, are saying, maybe God is calling me to Northern Colorado for such a time as this. What if God would take, uh, guys, Greeley is nicknamed the city where the West meets the Midwest. What if God would take a church planning movement like Resonate in the West, a church planning movement like the Salt Network in the Midwest, and a bunch of people here in Greeley crying out for God to move and use all of that to link arms to make Jesus famous in this community? What if that's the story that God wants to write here in this city. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter four, if you're not already there. That's where we're going to uh, be this morning. Uh, but uh, before I jump there, I do want to pause and just take inventory because uh, if you're considering jumping into this story that God is writing here in Greeley, specifically through Salt Church, you need to know that you're entering into a story that's already started. God is already on the move here in this community. Part of our culture here at Salt Church is uh, at 10.02 a.m. every day, we pray the verse of Luke 10.2 over our church and over our city. That uh, verse in Luke 10.2 is this, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So every day, 10 to a.m., we are praying that prayer that God would send laborers into Greeley that many people might come to know Jesus. And guys, I make no exaggeration that God has answered this prayer over and over and over and over and over again in our uh, midst. Let me give you just a, a highlight version of some of these stories. Um, Garrett Kiley is uh, the assistant wrestling coach here. He's been here for the last five years before it was ever on the docket to plant a church here. And when we met with him, he said, we are so glad that you are here on campus because there's really nothing for his wrestlers to be a part of to hear the gospel. Garrett is a uh, laborer in the harvest. 
John Miller is a guy from uh, originally born and raised in Greeley. He got baptized this year. God has so gotten a hold of this guy's heart that he wants to be a part of this church here in Greeley so that his friends and his neighbors and the people that he grew up with can see the change that the gospel has rooted in his life. John is a laborer in the harvest. Alex and J.D. Marquez moved here uh, from the original uh, church that I worked at before I moved out here. And uh, again, they, he got a job as a firefighter before it was ever on the, the radar to plant a church out here. And he has an opportunity to bring the gospel into some of the darkest moments of our city. They are laborers in the harvest. Todd and Rachel, Zach and Leah, Kurt and Deanne, you guys are our Windsor crew. You literally travel from a town uh, that's not even Greeley. Why? Because you want to see Jesus made famous here in this place. They are laborers in the harvest. Riley and Monica and Jared and Michaela are some amazing uh, people that I got the privilege to know over the last year. I discipled Riley and Jared over the last year and then officiated their weddings this summer to their brides. And then they moved out here and got a place in the same apartment complex. Why? Because they want to see Jesus made famous in this place. They are laborers in the harvest. Riley and Janae Smith, they moved here uh, so that Janae could be a part of the American Sign Language uh, degree program here. Again, we, we, they uh, came from a completely different church network than the one we're involved in, but they want to see Jesus made famous. This isn't just a stepping stone to something else. They want to uh, be a disciple maker in their neighborhood. They are laborers in the harvest. Noah and Emma Fair, they're from West Bend, Iowa. Emma did her master's uh, here at UNC. Again, before it was ever on the radar, to plant a church here in Greeley. And they travel from a community called Hudson, Colorado, which is 20 miles south of here. Why do they travel 20 miles to come to church? Because they want to see the gospel go to the next generation. They are laborers in the harvest. Connor and uh, Taylor, you guys have the coolest story. They're a dating relationship in, in our church. And uh, Connor... Um, Connor uh, went to one of our churches in Nebraska and is now back here because he's originally from here. He wants to see Jesus made famous here. Taylor is uh, studying here at UNC uh, for counseling and she wants to see Jesus made famous here. They are laborers in the harvest. Sushma, who literally did the scripture reading this morning, moved here like two, three weeks ago. And the first week she was here, she invited one of her neighbors and he came to our church. She is a laborer in the harvest. Briley moved here from Iowa. She got a, a job at the church where, or uh, at, at the school school where our kids go to. It's one of the most underprivileged schools in Greeley. And our heart's desire is to see the gospel go to some of the most broken families in our community. She is a laborer in the harvest. Anders, he's a college student here. He transferred from a, a school in Iowa to come here to be a laborer. And he's literally invited college students already into our midst. He is a laborer in the harvest. Do I need to keep going? Or should I just ask who's next? Who's next? Who's going to jump into this story? Guys, wherever you are today, you need to know this. The mission of God is not for paid professionals, while JV Christians just to get to sit on the sideline and watch it play out. You are all called. You are all called to play a role in this mission. If you've placed your faith in Jesus and you say that you are a Christian, then you are a laborer in the mission of God to bring the gospel everywhere and anywhere. It's just a matter of where you are particularly going. We believe God is writing a story here in Greeley and at UNC and that Salt Church is just one small chapter in that story. And we believe that this prayer that we pray at Luke 10 too is still gonna continue 
to be answered over and over and over again. We're going to see college students and young married couples and dating couples and parents and grandparents and kids and teachers and firefighters and wrestling coaches and sign language experts and farmers all take up the call to bring the gospel to Greeley, Northern Colorado, and to the ends of the earth. The question is, are you going to be in this story? Are you going to be in this story? Well, that wasn't even my introduction. Sorry, I just get excited about what God's doing in our midst. Let me speed this out. All right. At Salt Church, we uh, just, we just let you know, we've been meeting here uh, since the end of uh, August, every Sunday, and what we call our core team phase. Our core team phase is just an opportunity to say, what are the core essentials that are going to define us as a church? So that when we launch the church in 2023, we actually feel like a family and everybody's on the same page and we all know what we are about. So over these past couple of months, uh, we've been going over our vision, our mission, our rhythms. Um, and the last couple of weeks, we've been unpacking our core values. And so we have four core values here at Salt Church. They're gospel, spiritual formation, community, and mission. And to help us remember them, uh, there's an arrow that represents all of them, down, up, in, out. The gospel is the down arrow because Jesus came down to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to save us from our sins and restore all of creation and make it new. We're going to make no apologies about making the gospel the primary motivation for everything that we do. Spiritual formation is an up arrow because Jesus doesn't just leave us where we are at. He brings us up to God and shapes us and forms us to look more like him. And so we don't just believe the, the gospel is, hey, get out of hell and into heaven. No, we believe the gospel actually changes every part of who you are. Community is an in arrow because Jesus doesn't just reconcile us to God vertically, but he reconciles us to each other horizontally. And we want to move in towards one another in love. We, we don't think the gospel just saves individuals to live life on their own. We believe God saves a family, a community that loves one another. And then mission is out because we don't just stay a holy huddle where it's just only for Christians to come. No, we move out into the world to bring the gospel to places that need it. The same gospel that saves us invites us to share it with others. And we, wanna, we not only want to speak it to others, but we want to demonstrate its power by the way that we love and serve our city. So those are our core values. With that said, we're going to cover our core value of out or mission. So hopefully you found your way to Colossians uh, chapter four. I just have two ideas, two simple ideas I want to share with us from the text. And my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that they, they not only uh, stake a ground, uh, uh, put a stake in the ground for Salt Church, but that they would put a stake in the ground for your own life as well. So the first idea that I have that shapes our life is pray for the mission. Pray for the mission. We get this out of Colossians 4. I'm going to read verses two through four. It says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So the first idea we get from the text on how we all can live out this core value of out is we want to pray for the mission, pray for the mission. In the moment, I'm going to break down uh, these verses, but I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. Paul's main point is that prayer is essential to the mission of God. In fact, I think prayer is so crucial that before we even learn what the mission is, we better learn to pray. Prayer is not some transition thing that we do in the gathering. 
It's not our last resort when we've tried everything else in the mission. And then we're like, well, I guess we'll pray because we're not seeing results. Guys, no, prayer is the primary strategy of the mission. It's what we do first and it's what we do often. Because have you ever noticed this? This is a crazy thing that happened as the, 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 the book of Acts plays out. The disciples of Jesus Christ are standing there and they're seeing the resurrected Jesus. They saw this guy die and now they're seeing him resurrected. You would think that would be enough for them to just go tell everybody in the world what Jesus had done, but it's not. Jesus And, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, like before we start this whole thing, can you go get in a room on a whiteboard and write up your 10 step plan to reach the ancient world? No, he doesn't do that. What does he essentially say? He says, stay in Jerusalem, lock yourselves up and pray. Why? Why does he tell them to do that? Because they needed God's power more than they needed a great plan. They needed God's power more than they needed a great plan. You and I are incapable of getting inside a human heart and make it start beating for Jesus. We don't have that power. I don't care how cool or clever you are with declaring the gospel. I don't care how foolproof our strategies and our systems are. We don't have that power. But guess who does? God. That's why mission's primary strategy is prayer because we cry out for God to do that. And it's not a one and done prayer where it's like, hey, we're going to pay lip service to pray. So let's pray before the mission. But then really the real thing is like getting out and, and, and telling people about Jesus. No, because the book of Acts is essentially the story of how God was on mission to bring the gospel to the world. And if you actually read the book and you compare and contrast it to the gospels, guys, the book of Acts mentions prayer almost twice as much as the gospels. That should tell us something that the, the early church was about prayer. It wasn't just the first thing they did. It was something they, they, they did often. Prayer should be the first thing we do, and it should be something we should do often. This uh, past fall, um, I, we got uh, sod put in on our lawn, and so now there's just fresh grass in our uh, front lawn, and it is amazing. I think there's just something about hitting middle age as a dad where all it takes is like something like a nice lawn to just make you smile. Um, it's probably only a matter of time before I'm wearing jorts and I have the white New Balances, but uh, it's a thing. Um, but here's the thing. We, we currently rent our house. So I didn't pay for the sod to get put in. In, in fact, our, our landlord is so gracious and so amazing. They're like, hey, let us know what the water bill is because we want to pay for that too. And so not only did I not pay to put it in, I'm not even paying to maintain it. But do you think that stops me from doing Instagram stories about how awesome my lawn is? Like, no, I'm putting that out there. My neighbors aren't going to my landlord and saying, how amazing is your lawn? They're coming to me and they're saying, that's a great lawn. And guess who takes all the credit for it? Me, right? Now I say all that to say this, as I was thinking through my sermon this week, I kind of became radically convicted because if I'm honest, there's in, in my life, I felt like I didn't have a lot of times where God answered prayers for me personally. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit kind of gently rebuked me saying, John, perhaps the reason you don't see answered prayer in your life is because you're taking credit for things that God did. See, God is so often like my landlord. He's a, he, he, he blesses us with these amazing things, these amazing gifts, these amazing opportunities to bring the gospel and like an amazing lawn that I didn't pay for or I didn't pay to maintain. And yet here I am just taking credit for it. So often what I take credit for in my life, I think is just really answered prayer. 
and I, I can't see it because I'm too busy taking credit for it, right? How often has God actually answered our prayers and blessed us with more than we could ever ask or imagine, but we didn't see it as answered prayer because we were taking credit for it? Samuel M. Uh, Zwemer, he is the OG missionary to the Islamic world uh, in the early 1900s. And he has this great quote. He says this, the history of missions is the history of answered prayer. The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. I love this because I think when it's all said and done, guys, we're not gonna wish that we had done more for the mission of God. God sufficiently is going to do everything he needs to do to complete his mission. He was on mission far before we ever were. And it's an invitation to join that mission. He's not asking us to complete something completely foreign. God is the one that's on mission and we miss out whether we join him or not. But I don't think at the end, we're gonna be like, ah, I wish I would have done more in the mission. But I do think we will wish we had prayed more. Why? Because when we pray, guess who gets the glory? Guess who gets the credit? It's God. And in the end, when we see God face to face and we see his mission that he's completed, nobody's gonna be talking about what we did. Everybody's gonna be talking about what God did. Let's give him the credit where he deserves. Now, I wanna be practical this morning and I wanna ask, uh, what should our prayers look like? Paul's gonna give us uh, three things here. Uh, The first is this. He says, prayers should be often continue and steadfast. They should be steadfast. Now, this doesn't mean your prayers have to be this intense hour-long session uh, where you're um, speaking in tongues or something like that. Um, The word steadfast there simply means to persevere, persevere. And in other words, in our imperfect prayers, we need to learn to pray without giving up. Guys, prayer isn't easy. Oftentimes the Bible will talk about it as a struggle. In fact, later in Colossians, they bring up this dude named Epaphras and he says, this guy's struggling in prayer for you right? Like that doesn't sound like a compliment. Like Paul should have said like Epaphras is like killing it in prayer. No, he says he's struggling. That word struggling there also means wrestling. Because if prayer like comes hard to you and you've, you've like wrestled with it, good. That's the way the Bible describes it. It should be a hard fought thing. Paul knows that it's hard. It's why he's reminding them and us that we need perseverance. So I think we don't need to look at our lives and be like, am I crushing it in prayer? What we really need to do is to say, in my imperfect prayer life, am I choosing not to give up? Am I choosing to continue steadfastly in it? Second thing we need is to be watchful. To be watchful. The word uh, there is better translated wakefulness, to be wakeful. Again, uh, this doesn't mean that you need to pray without falling asleep, although that would help. Uh, but what uh, I think Paul is getting at here is that our prayers need to be, have this uh, spiritual alertness. We need to be spiritually aware of the things going around us. Um, if, if, uh, if you've read, ever read the story before uh, where Jesus uh, is, it's the night he's gonna be portrayed And his disciples, he asks them to pray and they legit fall asleep, like physically fall asleep. I don't think Jesus was upset in that moment because they physically fell asleep. I think Jesus is upset because they spiritually fell asleep. They were not aware of the situation that was going on in that moment, even though they had been told repeatedly. The the reality is, is when we pray for the lostness of our city, when, when, when we pray for the students of UNC, guys, there is an enemy that would love nothing more than for you to become bored with prayer. To, 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 to make distractions so 
uh, alluring and attractive that we don't recognize just how serious prayer is to make you spiritually fall asleep. So that prayer just becomes this formality. That's why we need a watchfulness in it. Third thing we need is thankfulness. Thankfulness. If you notice, Paul uh, says to pray with thanksgiving. He says, he doesn't say, hey, pray. And then when God answers your prayers, be thankful. He says, pray with thanksgiving, right? How do you pray with thanksgiving before God even answers your prayers? What if he doesn't give you what you ask for? How can you be thankful? Well, praying with thanksgiving here, Paul is reminding us that before you ever ask God anything, you can pray with thanksgiving because you already know that you have everything. See, uh, verses like uh, Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Uh, 2 Peter 1 says that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Colossians 1 says that you've been qualified for the inheritance that God wants to give because you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. See, you can be thankful in prayer because you've already been given God's greatest gift, his son, Jesus. And if you have that, you have everything. So steadfast. Watchfulness, thankfulness. Those are the conditions or the characteristics for how we should pray. The next question should be, what should we pray for? What should we pray for? Well, we should pray for the mission. That's the short answer. What is the mission? I love how churches spend like money and resources to come up with some clever mission for what their church should be. When in reality, if we just read the gospels, we would know what the mission is. Uh, Jesus essentially gives the same mission at the end of every gospel. In Matthew, he says, make disciples that are identified by the gospel. In Mark, he says, preach the gospel to all of creation. In Luke, he says, we're to be witnesses of the gospel. In John, he says, just as Jesus was sent to accomplish the gospel, we are sent to announce the gospel. Guys, the mission is essentially getting the good news of Jesus Christ out to anyone and everyone. That's the mission we are called to. And Paul gives us three specific ways I think we can pray for that mission. The first is to pray for open doors. Pray for open doors for the gospel. I love this because if you notice in verse three, Paul just kind of throws this in here. He says that he's in prison when he's asking this. He, like, picture Paul. He's in prison. He's writing Colossians. He's staring at prison cell doors. And instead of asking for those to be open, what does he ask for? He asks for spiritual doors to be open for the gospel. Guys, I don't know about you, but if I'm in Paul's situation, I'm not asking that. I'm going to be like, hey, can you guys pray for my freedom so I can get out of here and so I can be a missionary and go take the gospel all over the world like I, like I want to? But Paul does not pray that. See, for Paul, the prison wasn't an obstacle for the advancement of the gospel. It was actually an opportunity. Guys, how many things have we said are hindrances to the spread of the gospel when in reality, they might actually be an assistance to the spread of the gospel. One of the things that I find interesting is how we use this metaphor that Paul is using here. Uh, when we say God has opened a door for us, uh, if you're a Christian, this is kind of spiritual jargon, but what we usually mean is that God gave us an opportunity to pursue something that we really wanted, right? So if we got... Uh, a job that we really wanted, if we got accepted into the grad program that we really wanted, if we got the house that we put an offer in and a bid on and we got that, then God opened up a door for us, right? Like, and if we didn't get those things, then God closed the door. That's how we usually talk about that. 
But I don't think that's the way Paul is using that language here, or it's not really the way the Bible uses it either. See, for him, an open door for the advancement of the gospel supersedes an open door that would advance his career or circumstance. See, for Paul, he was wanting an open door for the gospel, not just an open door to get out of the bad situation that he was in. Now, I'm not saying if you're in prison, you can't ever pray for your freedom or you can't pray for good things to happen in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But what I think Paul is getting at here is we need to pray like this. God, would you take me to where there's the most open doors on a college campus, not just where I can get accepted into the best program. God, would you take me to where there's the most open doors in a neighborhood, not just where there's the safest streets. God, would you take me to where there's the most open doors in a job to bring the gospel to bear, not where just where I can get the most money. That's how we need to pray. Salt so, Church, the truth is if we elevate our personal open doors over and above the open doors that the gospel might actually get out, we might actually miss opportunities to share the gospel. Think about it this way. If Paul would have gained his freedom from that prison, he would have missed out on opportunities to share the gospel from within his own cell. A closed door in your life might actually be an open door for the advancement of the gospel. Second thing we need to do is we need to pray for a gospel team. Pray for a gospel team. I'm not going to spend a bunch bunch of time here, but I do want us to see the plurality of the language that Paul uses here. Notice in verse three, he says, pray for us that God may open to us a door. Paul's not alone in prison here. He's not alone on this mission. One of my favorite verses, uh, I probably said it ad nauseum at Salt Church, but uh, I love it. It's John 13, 35. It says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples. If you have love for who? One another. Paul is not, or uh, John's gospel isn't saying, hey, people will know that you belong to Jesus by the way that you love the world. That's not what he says. He says, hey, people will know that you belong to Jesus by the way you love other Christians. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's way easier to love the world than it is Christians, right? Because our best lead foot in the mission is actually each other. See, it's one thing to declare the truths of the gospel. It's, one, it's another thing to demonstrate its power when God brings seemingly strangers and enemies together, and yet they're loving each other because of what they have in common in Jesus. The world needs to see the gospel on display, not just hear it. So for those of you considering moving here, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for a team. It takes an us, not an I mentality when it comes to the mission. And if you're already in, if you're moving here or you're already here on the ground, pray for Christians to join you wherever you're at, whether it's your apartment complex, your neighborhood, the jobs you're gonna take, that the gospel might go forward and you might have a teammate in those places. The third thing we need to pray for is pray for gospel clarity. Pray for gospel clarity. Notice in verse four, Paul says that he wants to make the gospel clear. Guys, unless people know what the gospel is, it's kind of hard for the mission of God to advance. Uh, and Paul calls it a mystery, not, not because uh, it's a puzzle to be solved, but because it's hidden unless we proclaim it. So if we don't share the gospel, guys, it dies with us. I think one of the greatest dangers to losing the gospel is when we take the applications of the gospel and we equate it with the gospel itself. Let me explain this. The gospel changes everything. 
the good news of what Jesus did for you, his life, death, and resurrection, it changes everything. It changes how we view our time, our talent, our treasure. It changes our politics. It changes how we view our bodies. It changes how we view helping the poor, how we view loving our neighbor, and on and on it goes. It changes everything. But what can so often happen in churches is rather than making the gospel the main message, we take the applications of the gospel and we make it the main, entry, or make it the main message. And so the entry point to Christianity then becomes, well, you got to vote like this and you got to have a sexuality like this and you got to love and serve the poor like this rather than saying the entry point into Christianity is Jesus and Jesus alone. Hear me on this. There are certain applications of the gospel that are non-negotiables for here at Salt Church. We're going to hold two applications of the gospel, but we're never going to put it on par with the gospel itself because if we do that, we'll lose the next generation. And if you don't believe me, A famous scholar once uh, explained the history of the Mennonite church this way. He said this, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and lived out its applications. The following generation assumed the gospel and elevated its applications. The next generation denied the gospel and made application everything. Because the gospel isn't, hey, I obey, I'm a Christian because I obey God. The gospel is I'm accepted and loved and cherished by the father because Jesus obeyed in my place. And because he did that, now therefore I obey. If you get that equation wrong, you're gonna mess up the gospel. If we don't make the gospel clear, we're just one generation away from losing it. Let's be a people that pray with steadfastness, watchfulness and thanksgiving and we would plead for open doors for the gospel, for gospel teams to go forth and gospel clarity to happen in our midst. The second idea that Paul pulls out of this text um, or that I wanna pull out of this text that Paul wrote um, is practice the mission. So we pray for the mission and we practice the mission. Now we get this from the second set of verses in Colossians. Verses five and six say this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we need to practice the mission. If the mission is getting the gospel out into the world, then a key way we do that is we have to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed. On the one hand, it's not enough just to speak the gospel. As I said earlier, people want to see the power of the gospel on display. They want to know that it actually changes people's lives. And so we have to demonstrate the gospel by the way that we live and show that it actually changes people. On the other hand, it's not enough just to demonstrate the gospel. We also have to speak it. There's a a really famous phrase uh, that says, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. That doesn't actually really work because <laughs> uh, the gospel is primarily a message of words. At some point, you're going to have to open up your mouth and speak unless you're just an incredible mime. Like people aren't just going to pick up the gospel. You have to open up your mouth and speak it. And we need both of these in tandem. We need to proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. And Paul gives us two simple ideas here on how we can do this. The first is that we need to walk in wisdom. We need to walk in wisdom. Uh, the word walk there isn't uh, like literal. It doesn't mean to be like, hey, whenever you take a stroll out in the park, don't look like one of the speed walkers and be weird towards the people that you're walking next to. That's not what it means. Walk is a metaphor for how we live the Christian life. 
And so Paul is saying, hey, be cognitive of how you live around others who don't know Jesus. Be wise around them. Well, how do you do that? How do you walk with wisdom? Well, the text tells us. It says to make the best use of time. That word make use um, is actually a really weird word uh, in the original language. It means buying or to purchase. So Paul is saying, hey, when you live around non-believers and you're living your life around them, you need the wisdom to know when there's an opportunity to buy the time and use it for a spiritual conversation to introduce them to Jesus. I have some friends who are, are uh, uh, love thrift shopping, right? They love to go to garage sales. They love to go to Goodwill and they're experts in what is actually like worth a lot of money, right? So when they see like a pair of jeans that are like $2, I'm like, that's great. That's a pair of jeans. They buy it, then they go on Etsy and they sell it for like $80 because they know that like that particular brand uh, is amazingly uh, worth a lot of money. And so they know the opportunity. But here's the thing, you gotta know what you're looking at in order to buy those things, right? You gotta have the wisdom to know that. Well, the same is true for us. We have to know what we're looking at in the moments of everyday life and whether or not it's a great opportunity to buy the time to share the gospel. Here's a helpful hint to do that. Uh, When it comes to open doors for the gospel, walk through open doors and respect closed doors. Because we've all been in those situations where there is a closed door for the gospel. Don't try to kick that door in. Let the Holy Spirit work on that. And if that ends up being an open door, walk through that. But don't be obnoxious and weird and a jerk as a Christian, right? We've all been in those conversations where you mention, hey, what do you do for a living? Oh, like uh, I do this as, you know, whatever. Um, Hey, are you involved in a church? Like maybe the the conversation goes spiritual and you're like, yeah, I'm involved in a church. This is where I go. And the conversation just completely shifts. They like don't want anything to like do with that conversation. Like, yeah, how's the weather out? You know, like whatever. Like, don't, don't force that there. Let the Holy Spirit do that work. At, on the flip side, like, there's going to be times where you guys are going to have opportunities to bring the gospel to bear. And it's like, they're asking questions. They're curious of which, wh- why you believe what you believe. Take advantage of those opportunities. Buy the time and go into those moments, making the best use of it. One thing that uh, I've always been uh, kind of uncomfortable with um, is the fact that Jesus puts so much stock in the way that we as Christians are supposed to live our lives as a catalyst for the gospel. Like there's a part of me that wished that Jesus didn't do that. Uh, I grew up in the church and I remember uh, one time at youth group, uh, me and my buddies, we uh, were off to the side. We weren't playing in a game because uh, the youth group uh, game was really weird. We had to take off like our shoes and throw them in a pile. And then you were supposed to run and race and grab it. And it was unsanitary. And I don't know why we did that, but, uh, so we, we, we refused to play and we were hanging out off to the side and I, I legit don't even remember like the context of the conversation, but I'll, I'll never forget. One of my buddies said this at this point, because I don't like the fact that somebody looking at my life to consider whether they might become a Christian. I don't like the idea that someone is looking at my life to consider whether they might become a Christian. That's just too much pressure. And for years, that, that statement rattled around in my brain. I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is too much pressure. Like I look at my life and I'm like, really? People are going to look at my life and how I live and that might be a determining factor why they believe? Like I'm kind of a messed up person. I have a lot of brokenness. I have a lot of sin problems that I'm still dealing with. Like that's going to help people see Jesus? How does that work? And I didn't know what to do with that. 
And so I came to the realization uh, from a, a quote uh, by G.K. Chesterton, and he points out there's actually these two tensions that exist. The first is this. Did you guys know the number one reason people don't become Christians is Christians? It's kind of obvious, right? Like we've all maybe met some of those people who are like, I want nothing to do with the church. I want nothing to do with Christians because those people over there who claim Jesus, I don't want to be anything like them, right? We've met people like that. But do you guys know what the number one reason people do come to know Jesus? It's also Christians. Every one of you in this room decided at some point to become a Christian. Why? Because of another Christian. You saw a community where people were vulnerable with their sin and and they were caring and loving for one another. And you said, I wanted in on that. If that's the Jesus they follow, I want in on that. Guys, right now on this planet, more people are coming to know Jesus than at any other point in history. That's a fact. That's a reality. And you know what? It would make sense if the church was this perfect entity and people were coming to faith by just observing everything amazing the church was doing. That would make total sense. And yet if people still come to know faith at such a high rate, even today, even though we stumble about trying to walk in wisdom, isn't that proof that God is in our midst? Because wouldn't it be God's MO to take a people who are struggling to try to walk in wisdom, to try to learn to grow in this And yet God says, I know that you're putting forth effort in that. I know that you're not perfect in that. So I'm going to dump my presence into that. And I'm going to change people through your imperfect walking in wisdom. What is too much pressure for us, I think, is the right environment for God to flex. We are to walk in wisdom to declare the gospel by the way that we live. But we're also to speak the gospel. That's Paul's second idea. He says uh, that we need to speak the gospel. And I've labeled this talk with taste. Talk with taste. The text says that our speech should be gracious and seasoned with salt. Paul says elsewhere to speak the truth in love. Guys, graciousness is loving and caring. Salt is truth and actually a desire to convince someone and persuade them of the truths of the gospel. And here, I think you can fall into two different camps. You're either going to care too much about what outsiders think of you, and you're going to be all grace and no salt, or you're going to care about, uh, or you're going to care not care at all about what outsiders think of you, and you're going to be all salt and no grace, right? I know this because I've lived life both these ways, right? Uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be all grace and no salt because I cared so much about what outsiders were thinking of me, and so I kind of hid behind this phrase of oh, I'm just building a relationship with them until I can share the gospel with them. And then a month went by and another month went by and a year went by and I never shared the gospel. Why? Because I cared so much about what they thought of me and preserving that friendship that I didn't have the boldness to bring salt into the relationship and speak the gospel. Other times I've also lived the reverse side of that. And I don't care at all about what outsiders think of me. And I've, I've got a plan. I'm going to bring the gospel to bear. And we're, we're going guns a blazing, right? And those moments... I also would hide behind another guys. When people would reject the gospel, I'd be like, well, the, you know, the Bible says we'd be persecuted. We're going to be ridiculed. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. When in reality, honestly, I was just being a jerk and I was being overbearing and, and I was being rude to them and I wasn't actually interested in their heart. Guys, notice the text says, we do this. We speak grace, graciousness and we speak salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word answer there implies questions. If you're sharing the gospel in such a way that doesn't invite question asking and curiosity and a tell me more attitude, 
I think you're doing it wrong. If our gospel sharing isn't tailored to the person we're sharing it to, and we care more about the right method rather than the person actually receiving the gospel, I also think we're doing it wrong. We should be sharing the gospel in such a way that people taste it and want more. So church, this doesn't mean you have to have all the right answers and be an intellectual powerhouse and be able to answer everybody's doubts. Uh, one of my favorite verses uh, in uh, 1 Peter 3 Verse 15, it says this, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, oftentimes we use this verse to talk about apologetics. Like you gotta know all of the like intellectual answers for why we believe what we believe. But if you look at the context of that verse, Paul or Peter is actually talking about suffering. In this context, in, in, in our Colossian context, it's implied that people will ask questions based on your lifestyle, not because of intellectual curiosity. And just like Peter, I think that some of those moments where we are going to be asked a question and we need to give an answer, it's not usually an intellectual thing. It's because we are suffering and hurting and broken and we're still clinging to Jesus and the world wants to know why. I think that's a far better witness to a world than just trying to rattle off a bunch of intellectual answers. I'm not saying there's reason, there is reasons for why we believe what we believe. There is a moment to have those intellectual answers, but I think a far better witness to the world is if you're going through suffering, if you're hurting, if you're broken and you're saying, I'm still gonna hold to Jesus in the midst of that, the world's gonna pique their curiosity on that. And you have an opportunity to bring the gospel to bear in that moment. Let me close with this. The worship team can come back up. Because the only reason we have an open door for the gospel here in Greeley, in Montana, in the Midwest, in the Pacific West, in America, Northern Colorado, to the ends of the earth, the only reason we have an open door for the gospel is because that 2,000 years ago, Jesus ripped open the open door of his own grave. Revelation 3.8 says this, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, an open door into heaven and a right restored relationship with God. If we want to pray for the mission, if we want to practice the mission, we have to recognize first that we were first the mission. Jesus came to us to open up a door that we might have eternal life through him and know him forever. And maybe for some of us here this morning, the reason we're failing to pray for the mission or practice the mission is because we've never entered through this door that Jesus has opened. We can't share what isn't real to us. We can't bring the gospel to the world unless we've first received it. So this morning, as we wrap up this uh, vision weekend and as we uh, conclude this core value message on mission, my hope and my heart for you is that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, whether you join Greeley, whether you plant with Resonate, whether you uh, join Salt Church, whether you plant anywhere else across North America, my hope and my prayer is that you would recognize that you are the mission before you ever go out on mission, that Jesus literally moved heaven and earth to come after you, to invade your life, that you might know the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for every heart that's gathered here God, this mission that you've called us into is it's something that you've started. 
From before creation began, God, you had it in mind to send your son, Jesus, to create a people that would love, serve, and know you forever. And God, you've invited us into this mission. This is not uh, a drudgery command. You are not dependent on us to complete this mission. You are going to complete it one way or another, but yet you've graciously, like a father wanting to spend time with this child, you've invited us into it. So God, we take you up on that invitation. And would you do a mighty work in and among us for your fame? And would you get all the glory and all the credit? In your son's name that I pray, amen.